This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Time Watch Settings. The Kraken. Fabian Kushler. And the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. Once more, we enter the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut, but our copy of the... Frampton Comes Alive gatefold cover that we still use as a, a DM screen, uh, now with our special uh, Demogorgon figure that we've got from the Stranger Things uh, kids, has uh, gone weird. It's changing. It's Suddenly it's looking like uh, John Pertwee, and now it's looking like a dinosaur, and now there's just a weird, shimmering 4D time effect, because we're here to talk about Time Watch. And before we get to the content of this exciting segment, let's first of all Tell people that there's a special deal, a deal so special that we didn't put it inside the commercial for Time Watch that you're going to hear when this segment concludes, because some of you foolishly scrubbed through the ads, perhaps because you've heard them a bunch of times already. It's called Old Standards, Robin. It's it's how you build brand. But this time we want you all to know that there is an exciting uh, deal for a limited time only. If you go to the Pelgrane Press store and then order whatever you want, whether it be Time Watch stuff, which, of course, is the whole point of this, but also any other stuff from the Pelgrane store. And then once you check out, uh, you will get that uh, good old voucher box that we all know from uh, buying online. And if you type in the words Time Hut, all one word uh, and all in caps, you will get 10% off your purchase, whether it is Time Watch or whatever. So that's Time Hut, as your voucher code for 10% off in the Pelgrane store. And this is for a limited time only, so jump on it right away. I don't yet know when the offer ends. and That's, due to <laughs> that's the nature of, of time offers, Robin. Exactly. It's a time offer. So it's either because of the uh, uncertain nature of time around the Peter Frampton uh, uh, gatefold DM screen, or because Simon didn't answer his email. So uh, one or the other. <laughs> yes. I was actually seriously hoping that that was going to lead into Robin's alternate 1970s one-hit pop wonder albums. <laughs> and it was going to move from Peter Frampton to some other completely obscure artist who rocketed into stardom out of nowhere. And I was going to 
listen to uh, some some depth of knowledge that I had yet gone unplumbed. Well, if, if you want me to describe the alternate reality in which Max Webster uh, was one of the biggest acts of the 70s, instead of just a cool cult band for uh, Southern Ontario, w- we could do that. I want that like I want few other things in this life, Robin. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we should go with our, uh, assigned topic to go with the time hut 10% off voucher code. I don't know. Which, I think that Simon, uh, deserves to get, uh, 15 minutes on late, uh, seventies Ontario music scene in exchange for not answering his email. Well, uh, folks go to Spotify and see if, <laughs> see if Max Webster is on anything other than uh, Canadian uh, Spotify. If it's on your Spotify, <laughs> listen, sorry. listen to their I, second and I, third I, records. Listen is... to High Class in Borrowed Shoes and Mutiny Up My Sleeve. Basically, they're the meeting point between uh, Rush and Frank Zappa. There you go. That's Max Webster Comes Alive, coming to an alternate 1976 somewhere near you. Okay, well, I guess we've done our job and we can move on. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> the topic remains. Yes. Our fave settings for a Time Watch game. So, uh, Ken... Uh, you are playing uh, Kevin Culp's brilliant uh, gumshoe game of uh, hilarious over-the-top time travel, and uh, as is your wont, um, you prepared copiously for this, but then uh, time parasites came and sucked all the preparation out of your brain, and you have to improvise. No, why? You have to improvise. So let's say that we're doing a, a scenario where you bounce uh, quickly from one uh, time period to another uh, when... Uh, would you like to uh, drop the player characters first? And where? When and, and where? where? Well, the, the, there's two uh, requirements for, for this kind of question for me, and I think really for anyone. What do you know well enough to fake? And what is already super exciting even before you add time, guys? Because there's plenty of things you might know really, really well. The oh, I don't know, the history of the Southern Ontario rock scene really, really well in the 1970s. But there's a limited number of things that time guys can do there. Whereas if I know, for example, the uh, wars of succession after the death of Alexander the Great, I know those pretty well. And that's nothing but fun because it's phalanxes and elephants and uh, uh, Chandragupta Maurya tearing the Indian provinces away and all manner of great things are happening all up and down the length of the uh, of, of, of Western Asia. So uh, that would be a, a immediate place you can drop. Uh, the players take a little while to get their footing because very few people have all that stuff memorized. And they, uh, it does, it really doesn't matter what side they pick because, uh, spoiler, all of these guys are going to get crushed by Rome eventually. So you can have them bounce around and, and mess with things and enjoy the Library of Alexandria. That's a keystone that everyone's going to know and recognize and love. Elephants, that's a keystone that everyone's going to know and recognize and love. And I guess that's the other thing that you want in a time watch game, especially is enough familiarity so that the players feel like they've got some anchor. Uh, the, the player to cling to. Obviously, their characters are going to have uh, giant scores in history and know everything backwards and forwards. But if you know, for example, the Kamakura era Japan super well, there's going to be a lot of up, uphill explaining to most North American game groups who all of these various clans are and why it matters. Whereas if you drop them into after the death of Alexander the Great, his generals split the empire up. That gets them somewhere. You say Library of Alexandria. You say uh, a golden coffin full of uh, frankincense where Alexander is is lying in state. That gives them an immediate visual. Uh, there's lots of stuff that they can just pull out of their out of their head and feel familiar with. And you can um, uh, even if they don't have the Seleucids, Ptolemies, and Antigonids just lined up right there, ready to go. It's pretty simple, and most people will be able to to 
peg on the Ptolemies as Cleopatra's uh, antecedents. So that's where I would drop them. And for Time Watch, it's not like uh, this is a game where it's about uh, showing off your PhD in history, but rather a bunch of kooky time stuff happening. And so I would tend to gravitate towards uh, locales and situations where the familiar meets the unexpected or at the cusp or, you know, just right after a crisis point has started so that there isn't a lot of time to wander around and be all sandboxy and poke things and ask the daimyo for the lineage of his clans, but rather that there's something uh, big that's already happening that you sort of drop in the middle of. And I also like things uh, that are sort of unexpected or, or jagged in time or our perception of time. So, for example, the period of conquistador uh, history in the Me- in Mexico when the silver shipments that were being uh, ripped out of the mines and then uh, transported to the coast were guarded by samurai, uh, which is, uh, you know, if you line up those time periods, you go, oh, yeah, of course, those that, you know, we think of the samurai era as being medieval, but it was medieval in structure, not in time. And uh, in fact, a bunch of samurai wound up bouncing around and getting shut out and uh, headed over to Mexico to sell their that's cell katanas, I guess you would call it. They're, they're cell swords. And so if you drop the players into the middle of the, okay, uh, you're seeing the, the caravan approach the, down the muddy road and uh, you uh, see ambushers on the other side. And wait a minute, there's samurai guarding the, the caravan? And then that can be a crazy sort of historical footnote or image that, uh, you know, as you know, yep, there's samurai guarding them. And that's not even due to any timey-wimey uh, weirdness. That was a, That's actual history for you. And then, of course, something happens. The bandits attack and the samurai fight them off. And then you have whatever it is that you need to do for the MacGuffin of this particular episode that depends on your going down and getting in the middle of it. And maybe it's clear to you which side you want to be on. And maybe it's not, but you've got a clear weirdo image that uh, is perhaps out of context at first, but reveals itself as being a part of the, the strangeness of real history. So if we're looking for, um, you know, sort of periods near a crisis point where there are unexpected uh, blendings of things, then another possibility might be the Sarmatian, Alan, Scythian uh, warriors that were dumped into Roman Britain in the second century AD, basically to get them as far away from the frontier where they were a threat as possible. So you've got people who are immediately going to look like the Mongol hordes riding around near Hadrian's wall, uh, messing with Picts and probably also with Britons, uh, truth to be told. And so that's another strike striking visual image. You've got these uh, guys riding around on their little ponies. They probably don't have stirrups yet, although one can never tell. And they're, uh, you know, firing recurve bows and all the rest of it. And they're there in England. And what's going on with this? And it, what's happening is the Romans have moved these guys uh, there to uh, provide a mobile cavalry as the Irish uh, raiders and Pictish raiders get more and more stroppy during the uh, uh, beginning of the late classical cold snap that uh, eventually leads to general southward movement by people who are near Rome. Uh, another, uh, I guess, even more famous example of uh, unexpected combinations of cultures and places would be the Viking mercenaries in Constantinople. And basically, uh, you can't pick a period in Constantinople where 
everything is pacific and fine and nothing weird is happening. Because, <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there's always something weird and violent happening in, in Constantinople. You could even have a whole adventure where you just bounce from different eras in Constantinople and there's a different horrible disaster happening each time that you have to deal with. But, uh, you, uh, or you, you know, the bat, the battles between the factions, the, the, uh, the purples and the greens where, uh, in something that's not at all fam uh, familiar from contemporary history, uh, people in Constantinople just divided themselves up into two, uh, social cultural teams and decided to destroy each other. So that's a, a, a fascinating, weird uh, conflict in history. And then I guess it's just a matter of going back through all of our past episodes and checking all the Ken's time machine segments. So, you know, Pompeii, just as the uh, explosion, as the clouds appear on the horizon, uh, is a perfect little chunk of a scenario in which you have to go in, get something or somebody and get out before the... Uh, the pumice rains down and hits your time machine and destroys it. Uh, if you are interested in the all Byzantium, all uh, singing, all dancing time travel game, by the way, Up the Line by Robert Silverberg is the book that you want, which is about a time tour guide who gets himself into not all, but a good chunk of the problems in Byzantium uh, while trying to inculcate the grandfather paradox, most likely. Um, I think that another uh, great place to drop people is sort of the immediate familiar and then they can start looking around for the unfamiliar. Obviously, your your World War Twos, your Civil Wars, your Shakespeare's Londons. Uh, another strong place to drop people is, I, I guess, basically, you look anywhere that Rip Hunter went in the comics is a place to drop people. And then Rip Hunter fought an awful lot of aliens. So I think aliens is a good thing. Uh, really, going back to Rip Hunter comics as uh, the place to start looking for uh, Time Watch uh, scenarios is not bad. You're like, I'm at the Battle of Arbella. Why are there blue aliens using free freeze rays? And then you are just jumping right into it uh, with fun like that. Another uh, great um, uh, sort of exciting notion of, of transposition might be rather than transposing samurai to the Spanish Mexico, you've got cowboys, of course, but you can have cowboys in Argentina during the 1880s. Uh, you can have cowboys in the Boer areas of Africa. So you can have cowboys and Zulus rather than cowboys and Indians, which is a much fairer fight, really. And then uh, there are cowboys, of course, in, in the interior of Australia during um, uh, during the Australian um, frontier period, I guess you want to call it. And then that can let you introduce whatever kind of strangeness you'd wanted to bring in from those far distant places, whether it be a lost Incan colony or some sort of dream time magic. Uh, I suspect the dream time and time watch do not get along super well. And then uh, you've got uh, King Solomon's Mines, of course, classically there in, in South Africa, thanks to the uh, good offices of H. Ryder Haggard. So any number of things that you think are familiar, you can then move to another place. That, of course, is the other great thing about pirates, is that pirates show up everywhere, and uh, specific pirates show up a lot of places. We have alluded, I believe, not on the program yet, to the fact that about a third of the Barbary pirate captains by the late 16th century were Europeans who had just converted to Islam to get better jobs as pirate captains than whatever they had going on before. Uh, that's another possibility. You, you're there in... Um, uh, Arabian Nights looking Algiers or Tunis or Tripoli. And all of a sudden there's a bunch of broad piratey Somerset vowels coming at you. Arr, matey. Why be not uh, honoring the memory of the prophet today? Smacko. <laughs> that kind of thing. Peace be upon him. Arr. Right. Uh, and of course there's the whole litany of uh, leptonic events. So uh, you could wind up on uh, Oak Island just after the Oak Island treasure has been buried. You could, uh, 
appear on the Marie Celeste 12 hours before the disappearance. And of course, uh, you know, Roswell in uh, 47 is, uh, that goes without saying. You can round up the missing plesiosaur that keeps showing up in Loch Ness. Yeah. Uh, you can find out what Croatoan means. Uh, so there's all sorts of uh, different things from the annals of elliptony that you can draw on. And, uh, uh, you know, you can go visit the Mothman. And, uh, you know, really uh, what you, you know, you could very easily just uh, create any sort of adventure by just making a big list of uh, weird, fun historical events that you can uh, uh, BS your way through enough to run an action sequence in and, you know, just uh, roll them up in a chart or draw them out of a hat. That's the... Uh, the easy, fun thing about Time Watch. Right. You could also mix and match. Uh, so you can follow the plesiosaur that is in Loch Ness down to the Romans who are fighting along the shores of Loch Ness back during Agricola's invasion of the place in 80 or whatever it is, AD. Uh, or you can have them, you know, uh, messing with King James when he's panicked about witches and the devil already and have a real life dragon show up and, and screw with them. You can have, uh, so I guess what I'm saying is you look for a place that's already exciting in some way, and I'm not saying exciting the way Byzantium is exciting, although that's not a terrible idea either, but that has some sort of long pattern haunting or weird thing happening related to it, the Bermuda Triangle, another strong possibility, and go through all the time stuff along its shores that you can possibly imagine. So for the Bermuda Triangle, you can have Vikings sailing through it, you can have uh, Caspar Garter Real and uh, Humphrey Gilbert vanish in it. You can guide Columbus through it. You can have all manner of excitement in Ray, your Bermuda Triangle adventures. And then when you get tired of that, then you're skipping over to Loch Ness or. And you're um, missing a step if you don't uh, go to the Hollow Earth. And of course, within the confines of the Hollow Earth, your time machine doesn't work. So you're stuck there for a while until you can escape again. That's uh, that's always right, fun. and it doesn't work because the Hollow Earth shouldn't exist. And so you're like, how did someone build a Hollow Earth, and what's going on? Are we in the infinitely distant future where building the Hollow Earth is super easy because it's full of singularity bots that don't care about stuff, or are we in a a world of magic and somehow they've canceled out our um, nonsensical relativity and and whatnot? What's going on? And, and you know, there's comic book Nazis there. Whatever the answer to the previous question is, there's nonetheless still comic book right. Nazis. Well, th that's another thing uh, that is a strong possibility is you have your bad guys with a time machine, comic book Nazis, of course, being one of the best, um, and you get to sort of chase them around. And so, you know, even if it's a period where you didn't think that there was a lot, like our previously adduced uh, Kamakura era in Japan, where the Heike and the Minamoto are fighting... You don't have to pick a side because the Nazis have picked a side. So you're on the other side, whatever the problem is. And then you can stomp the, 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 the comic book Nazis as they're attempting to help, uh, Heike and or Minamoto winning, uh, win the civil war. Or maybe the Nazis are there to play Ojimbo and it's your job to bring the, get the Nazis out and, uh, settle the civil war rather than keep it going forever. You could, uh, beam into a Bilderberger conference in like 1988 and the, the owl god begs you to, uh, save it from its bondage and and uh, and set it free away from the uh the powerful uh, psyches of uh George uh, Prescott Bush and uh Henry Henry Kissinger. That, that's uh, Bohemian Grove, not Bilderbergers. Oh sorry, Bohemian don't, Grove. Don't get the owl god. It's an uh, alternate reality, it's man. It's an alternate owl god. Or maybe there's a bunch of owl gods. You know, again, that's another sort of thing that you you can go and you can look up and you can say, "Oh, look, Athena had a, had an owl as her totem. Is there an owl cult that is uh flourishing throughout timeline because it's wise and can spin its head around and that's sort of a symbol for being able to travel in time, right? You can move your head all around yep. without anything." And here, just as we hit the end point of the segment, we've 
come upon the number one brilliant thing about Time Watch is that if anyone well actuallys you about a mistake that you've made off the top of your head, uh, see previous, it's actually just true. <laughs> and you just, oh, no, sorry, that you're incorrect. Uh, you're obviously the time records have changed. Go look it up. It, it is now the Bilderberger group that worships an owl. And uh, guess what? And then uh, so part of the thing is that you have to yes and any historical mistake that you uh, you make on the fly and build that into the essence of whatever the, the scenario it is. And I guess on that note, now that we've proven that we're uh, never wrong, just retroactively correct, it's time to move to our next segment. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty Velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. The indistinguishable voice on the tannoy, the overpriced candy bars for sale, and the general attitude of international Anomi tell us that we are either in a late period Bergman film or we are in the travel advisory. And in the travel advisory today, we are advising you to travel if you are one of the elites and the luckies like young Robin is to the Kraken, which is normally in a castle in Germany, but has been downgraded to a mere chateau this year. And, uh, my condolences, first of all, Robin. Right. So it, the story, which you'll get in more detail in the next segment when I interview uh, Fabian Kuschler, who's the organizer of the Kraken, is uh, a little different than that. Uh, it's in the Schloss Neuhausen and has been, the Kraken has always been in this uh, one location, which is basically a, a country house uh, that, that was built on the uh, ruins of an old castle. Fabi previously ran a convention called Tentacles, uh, oh. which is in a castle-turned-youth hostel on the banks of the Rhine. So so you so you have never been to the Kraken, but you have always been to Tentacles? Or you have been to the Kraken? I've been to Tentacles. I've now been to Tentacles once and the Kraken once. All right. So that's what's going on. Right. So the tentacles of the Kraken extend to the Rhine, Indeed, but the yes. body of the Kraken is in Brandenburg. Right. right. And so uh, this is held in, uh, it's in the former East Germany, and it's the uh, it's a rural area, the least populated part of Germany. It's uh, five kilometers to the nearest restaurant. Holy uh, Christ! There's lots of uh, livestock as you as you drive through, and some uh, uh, some crops as well. But it's it's rural. Yeah. 
So do you do you have to backpack all your all your worst in? Is that how they feed you? No, because this is a gaming retreat. So it's a full uh, all all inclusive uh, deal where the proprietors of uh, the Schloss uh, prepare uh, a breakfast for you, which of course is your classic uh, Euro breakfast with all the uh, the your cheeses and your uh, uh, luncheon meats and your uh, boiled eggs right. and your uh, buns that you can put Nutella or, or jam on, and of course lots of coffee. And then there's a uh, lunch served in midday, and then uh, dinner in the uh, early evening, and there's a coffee uh, break with uh, delicious German uh, uh, desserts uh, in there as well. So uh, you eat very well at this event because it is well-done group cooking that feels, uh, although you know, it, it's not heavy-duty, rich restaurant food. It's like hearty, good it's quality. It's like resort food. food. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, you, you get your uh, carrot soup or you get your stuffed uh, bell pepper or, uh, uh, you know, it's a different meal each time. And uh, really good quality uh, food that doesn't make you feel ill once you've been on the road for several days. Goodness. So, <laughs> well, we can't have that. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's no going down to the shaken steak or even to the kebab uh, place. Uh, it's all uh, there. All of the beer or wine you could want to drink is on site, of, of course, as well. And it's a European con, so people just uh, wander around with their uh, German beer in hand uh, at whatever hour of the day, but uh, very civilized, not right, a lot yeah. of drunken craziness. So it used to be a gaming vacation, it used to be held in the summer and was longer, uh, so there are four full days of programming. Now it's a gaming retreat, and it's in the fall, which means, from what I understand, less bugs, and the program is a bit compressed. Also, like a lot of Eurocons, the scheduling is a work in progress. There's a big board that you got to sign up on and check things out, and then things can move around uh, as necessary through the weekend, depending on how frazzled people are and what other events come in and pinch. And the attendees come from uh, all over Europe, and uh, there were some uh, American and, uh, and Australian expats there. The whole Chaosium crew was there, too, but there were people from uh, Finland and uh, France and, uh, uh, of course, uh, Germany as well, and uh, some folks from England. So it's quite the collection of folks, and they're very, very, you know, sort of high-end, uh, dedicated gamers. So on uh, the first night, I did sort of an improv-based uh, game that I kind of made up on the spot. I'm going to talk about that a bit more in a future segment, tell people how to do that. But it's like you, you know, played for three hours, and then at the end, for an hour, we had a a discussion workshop about what had just happened. And <laughs> there we are. Now, now I feel like we're in Germany. Although I don't think, it, well, I'm not sure there might, I'm not sure anybody at that table is actually German or maybe so maybe, but not predominantly German. Yes. This is a dedicated gamer thing, not a German thing. Right. So you, you ran an improv game that you made up out of the spot. What's, what is the other gaming uh, scene like if, uh, if for our European audience that may think, gosh, I would like to go to a remote chateau in Germany and be fed uh, resort food and wander around with uh, German wine and play games. What are the other games that are, that are on offer? Are they similarly experimental? Is it sort of a designer forward convention like Metatopia or is it everyone's playing awesome games of the Schwarze Auge and Call of Cthulhu because there are no other games. <laughs> These conventions come out of Chaosium fan fandom. So right. uh, there's lots of Glorantha. Glor it was, it's the 50th anniversary of Glorantha. So there are a lot of Glorantha focused events. And the uh, events that I 
uh, ran uh, were a Hero Quest game set in Glorantha and a Hillfolk game set in Glorantha. And then uh, lots of other uh, people were engaged in similarly Chaosium or Chaosium related sorts of games. So, for example, uh, there was uh, some Knights Black Agents being played, because of course Pelgrane has a kind of a uh, crossover effect with the uh, the Chaosium fans, and the whole Chaosium crew was there as well to uh, demo games and to talk about their plans. Sandy Peterson was there uh, to demo his uh, uh, crazy cool board games. We'll be hearing his interview next week on the show. And so uh, it's uh, definitely an outgrowth from uh, Glorantha and Chaosium fandom. So uh, lots of Call of Cthulhu, and as I said, there's some Pelgrane stuff being played as well. That's lovely. So you have, we've, we've talked about the gaming. We've talked about, uh, the food options there in, in remote, uh, Schloss Kraken. Are there seminars or is it straight up, uh, we're gaming all the time and there's no time for, for panels or anything? Uh, I did three seminars. Uh, one of them is already available on uh, YouTube. You can see the whole thing. It's an hour of taking, uh, audience suggestions and showing how to structure an active scenario in which the uh, players, uh, the, their characters have agency and they're central to the action because there's a bit of a sort of a spectator problem sometimes in playing in Glorantha where if you're not careful, you'll spend the whole time watching uh, all the cool people doing cool things. And so it's all about structuring right. an adventure. So much like the Forgotten Realms, because there's so much stuff in the background that the GM feels obligated or excited to bring right. forward. Right. So there's a whole hour on how to structure things so that that doesn't happen and to create an adventure based on uh, premises that the audience throws out. And so uh, you can see that. And there are other uh, sort of uh, uh, high. There is a fix my game Robin uh, event, which is the usual uh, game mastering advice. And, of course, it's a mm. high-level group, so it's, it didn't have the "How do I fix this person in my in my game?" <laughs> uh, and uh, and then there was one of higher-level stumper questions, uh, including how to uh, do a uh, gumshoe game in which there are two investigations going on: your investigation and uh, investigation by an antagonist group. So, and those were all recorded and and shot on video. So. Those should, uh, if they're not on YouTube soon, they will be eventually. And then, of course, I got to go to uh, Berlin for a couple of days afterwards, or Berlin, as uh, the locals call it. Berlin, 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 Berlin. That's exciting. Um, that that will never happen to me. <laughs> I will, if I if I go there, they are going to be correcting my pronunciation. All, of course, I went to Paris and called it Paris up one side and down the other, and never got an ill look. Everyone was very lovely. Uh, to I me certainly in Paris. did not get corrected. I did learn a, some important things about Berlin, though. Uh, one is that it's not really part of Germany. <laughs> well, I thought only West Berlin wasn't part of Germany. Is now uh, all well, of Berlin not well, part of Germany? Well, now that it's deserved East Berlin, now it too is not part of Germany. Is that in the same way that Austin is not part of Texas? Well, the rest of Germany uh, is known for efficiency. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Berlin is a hodgepodge of nonsense where nothing uh, you don't expect anything to work. So, uh, uh, like the UK, I guess. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> take that UK. Well, the, the UK though, if there's something that doesn't work, there will be a sign up apologizing for why it doesn't work and explaining right. that nothing can possibly be ever done to make it work. Right. And uh, we don't know what you were expecting. Especially it involves plumbing and they're shipping out all of their plumbers due to Brexit. But uh, immediately <laughs> we had a, uh, a luggage situation upon arrival in, in Berlin and uh, the place you had to go in order to sort out your luggage 
uh, problem was uh, comically uh, uh, obscure and ill-marked and uh, unprepossessing <laughs> looking when you finally found Behind it. Behind the sign saying, beware of the leopard. There was one sign that showed you how to get to it, which basically implied that you had to dig directly down under the pavement. <laughs> and so the explanation is that, you know, uh, Berlin, because it was partitioned for so long between different powers and just there's a lot of money and not a lot of demand for competence is the uh, it is your place for boondoggles, so it is, I guess, your Boston of uh, of Germany, and not a place where efficiency occurs. Right. Okay. Well, we could talk about Berlin all the live long day, and in fact, we may. Um, is there more to the Kraken that we that we wish to? Uh, I think we basically covered that. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so we got to go to the see uh, see the new museum. Uh, uh, one of the archaeologists there is a Kraken attendee, so uh, she very kindly uh, took us around and told us not a, only about her own research, but gave us... Now, the, is this new as in Europe? Like, it's new because it was built in 1880? Or is it new as in... No, it's... Okay, <laughs> it there built, we go. It was to distinguish it from the old museum, the Alt museum, which was built in 1820. And... Uh, oh, so is this, like the, is this like the museums in Munich, the new art museum and the old art museum? The old art museum is called that because it holds the old art, and the new art museum holds the new art, and I again, was, new meaning 19th century. It was built later. It has the Egyptian mummy, so it's not, it's not the new content. It's not the new, new yeah. content, unless the old one has got, like, um, uh, Sumerians. I'm not even sure the old, what the status of the old one is. It may still be derelict, because uh, this lay in ruins uh, through uh, most of the history of the, the GDR. Um, it was heavily bombed, and uh, the uh, artifacts were uh, either already taken out or taken out afterwards, and uh, it has only just now been refurbished. And so it is a, a modern museum in the shell of the old. And in fact, like so many official bu buildings uh, in uh, this part of Berlin, you can see all the bullet holes that have been plastered over, that the, uh, you know, the, the scars of war are still uh, everywhere. And, uh, you know, that when you get a, a walking tour of Berlin, as I briefly did, but we chickened out because the weather was not so great. Even if you say, you know, can we maybe not do the Nazi stuff this time quite so much, but it's, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> let me tell you about the communist atrocities. Here's, here's the, here's, here's the university where they sent everybody to Siberia after a rebellion. And so, okay, right. Uh, it's it's Berlin, all right. Yeah, I I think if you're looking for the the city where the walking tour is not depressing, Berlin may not be the immediate choice. Although I'm sure there's lovely things in Berlin. I mean, it's it's uh it's a bigger city than that. It's got all manner of other exciting, you know, Frederick the Greats and people who only murdered thousands of people. It's it's big and spread out. Uh, it did not match my the the sense of it as a big bustling city. Uh, was not. Uh, as present as I expected, because the it's very low density. It's got like a seven-story uh, height limit, and so oh, it's right. very, okay. very spread out. So it doesn't have that big city feel. It's got a whole bunch of a small city, and uh, the, uh, the romanticism of Berlin that you expect if you're you know steeped in seventies culture of here's where Bowie and Iggy Pop went in the seventies to be on heroin and invent a synthesizer they didn't remember building. Uh, you know, that part of Berlin is not uh, visually evident, shall we say. So um, right. my uh, sense of Toronto being a uh, small city is, uh, you know, completely wrong because the GTA is now 6 million people and we have this incredible density and it's building up like crazy. And uh, uh, Berlin does not have that uh, international city vibe to it. It's still, uh, you know, a 
whole bunch of a, a small city, but it's a city that, you know, bears the, the scars of history big time. Right. Now, um, in Berlin, uh, since you are not now in resort of time, did you find a terrific Berliner uh, food? The only thing I know about Berlin cuisine is that it's one of the few places in Germany you can put flavoring in beer and people don't look at you funny. That they have the Berliner's, uh, I forget if it's called the Berliner's Oft or whatever, but they put like uh, raspberry they, in their they beer and stuff in Berlin. They, they, they do. Oh, oh, that reminds me. I should talk about the beer tasting event at the Kraken. But, you should. Uh, but the, the question currently on the table is, was there delicious food consumed in Berlin? And the answer is... And also beer. Uh, yes. Uh, although most of my delicious beer was uh, consumed at the, at the beer tasting event. At the show. Uh, because uh, you told me before I went, make sure you drink some wine as well, Robin. And then that, this was I my did opportunity say that. to do that. So uh, I had a lovely reasoning at uh, Luther and Wegner, which is uh, established in 1811. So I guess it's a new spring chicken restaurant as well. Their business card has a little engraved period engraving of E.T.A. Hoffman having a beer with a friend. Awesome. And, I already love this place. Uh, it was incredible. The uh, the truffle stuffed gnocchi uh, was uh, was delicious. Uh, we went in there looking for a lunch, a light lunch because we knew we'd be eating heavily later in the day. Well, uh, much like that time we went out to another restaurant after the time we went to Gautier, uh, things did not quite go uh, that well, but the, uh, it was just so delicious I couldn't uh, not uh, finish that one. So that was lunch. I would recommend that very highly. And also uh, there was a classic Bavarian-style restaurant that we went to in the evening, the uh, Margelsen, which is German for cute little tot. And uh, there I had, uh, there's this incredible appetizer plate that uh, I, I barely managed to put a, a dent in with like venison charcuterie and smoked fish and all of this incredible you, stuff. You have my full attention. Uh, and then uh, the main course I ordered was a game pot. So it, again, I had the venison and uh, boar and this uh, delicious heavy gravy. And uh, uh, obviously Riesling would not uh, withstand that onslaught. So no, I, no, you got to have a red with that. So I had, no, actually, I had a dunkel with that. I went back to the beer. For okay, that. back to the beer. So the game pot was that like bigosh, like hunter stew in Poland, basically the the all kinds of meats and uh, some kind of beans or potatoes to soak it up, or was it just uh, straight no, up it was meat, a, meat, 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 meat? A, a stew of uh, venison and boar, and then you got uh, this uh, incredible big round ice cream scoopy uh, potato dumpling. And uh, you got your, uh, right. your big cabbage on the side and so forth. So it's like a ragu, really. Yes. Right. Okay. So I, I would Fantastic. highly recommend both of those restaurants. Well, no, absolutely. You, you, you don't have to talk me into venison and boar ragu. That sounds magnificent. Uh, but because I'm uh, somewhat addled still from my trip, I guess I forgot to mention the beer tasting. Uh, what? So a great ripple of excitement went through the German gamosphere uh, several years back when I decided that, hey, wait a minute, craft beer is really good. I guess I like beer. Um, and so uh, this was the <laughs> yes, second I, I Beer with Robin event. The first one was at Hanover Spielt a few years ago. So now an entire new selection of beers was provided for my uh, delectation. And so, uh, and this time there's a big enough group of people there that uh, we all enjoyed a little bit of everything. And the honcho of Chaos and Rick Mainz dis uh, displayed his superpower, which is it turns out he is able to guess within a couple of points, the ABV, the alcohol volume, of almost any beer that he uh, tastes. Wow. That's a skill. Uh, that is a skill. And so uh, I uh, was the one who purchased at uh, the beer store the winner of the event, because as someone who enjoys craft beer, I 
knew a couple of keywords that uh, my uh, German host would not necessarily have been cued into, that there's actually now, there's a craft beer movement in Berlin. Uh, and you would think, craft beer, that seems somewhat uh, beside the point in Germany, when yes, all of the right. big breweries uh, produce uh, mostly amazing beers that are basically the, the price of a Coca-Cola. But uh, it was one of these craft beers that won uh, the tasting. The, the judges, which is to say me, chose the uh, Velda Bourbon Barrel Box. There we go. As the winner. Uh, and uh, I knew all about how delicious uh, beer age, or sorry, barrel aged beer is. And my uh, German compatriots. And bourbon barrels even better. Yes. Uh, were surprised and also uh, delighted. Uh, and, and it wasn't just me saying that was the big one. So that was the, the uh, first place. Second place went to a Velanker Schwartz, and the third to a Kolbitza Bach. Now, yes, that betrays my uh, leaning toward uh, darker, richer, sweeter beers, but uh, there was nobody who was uh, who was arguing with that much. Those were all really great. And uh, oh, and, and and of dark beers, Bach is uh, is is better, uh, I think, than other beers. So good for it. And bourbon barrels, you can't beat it. So I feel like I was there in spirit. Uh, you were indeed. And who knows, maybe someday you'll be there in person. But anyway, uh, that Would is be nice. the Kraken. Now, uh, we touched on the history of the Kraken and how it is run, but uh, let's hear some more about that. We've never talked to a convention organizer on the show. so Well, we talked to Kat Tobin, but not as a convention organizer. That's right. Um, I'm sure we've talked to other people who've also organized conventions, but this is our first interview about the history of a series of conventions and about convention organizations. So uh, at the end of this commercial message, you will uh, hear a very jet-lagged Robin uh, talking to Fabian Kuschler. when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it. Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by patrons exactly like... Patrick Joint. Benjamin Blanding. Graham Wills. Jeremy Forbing. And Phil Bailey.
So welcome everyone to yet another segment of Ken and or Robin Talk About Stuff. And I'm here to talk about some stuff with Fabian Kuschler, who is the driving force uh, behind uh, the Kraken and has a long, uh, interesting history uh, behind uh, many other conventions. Uh, this is sort of a description of the German convention scene, but actually these are often conventions that are conducted largely in English, so it's more the international uh, con specialty scene uh, in Germany, but uh, not of Germany. Uh, so, uh, Fabi, why don't you start off by uh, telling people uh, how you got involved in uh, running events and what the uh, gaming scene was in Germany that led you to do that? Sure. The basic uh, starting point uh for me and my love affair with conventional game shows started when I uh, attended my very first game show, actually, uh, where I find, found out what, what role-playing is really about. That was when I was about 14. And so uh, I had that thrill very early on to be able to play RuneQuest at a, a show where I didn't even know how to sign up for games, basically, because I was so um, unexperienced. And I ended up playing uh, RuneQuest. And so the... Uh, it's the same thing happening at the time that I fell in love with RuneQuest and conventions at the same time. So that's always um, made conventions special to me. And when I joined up the RuneQuest Gesellschaft, the RuneQuest Society in Germany, it's a club who actually is a Chaosium support fan club, um, I uh, kind of attended our regular yearly convention conventions. And at one point it was handed over to me because I was the guy who was uh, closest to Castle Starlake. And so uh, with, uh, at the age of 19, I basically took over running that show for our club. And I said, let's do this again. I want to do it better and let's stay at that place. And before that, we were wandering around in Germany. And so one thing led to another and uh, was about 13 uh, tentacles conventions in a row, one every year. And then we decided we should do something else. And the result was the Kraken. So uh, in that account, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, so uh, let's talk first of all about uh, your the first convention you ran, and what is Castle Stalag? Castle Stalag is a Jalsasl. Uh, it's a castle. I'm not really quite sure about the history, but it's not really a medieval castle. It has been uh, rebuilt and uh, basically like destroyed once and um, and rebuilt. And it used to be a, I think it also has a little bit of Nazi history to it. So uh, there was, I think, the Hitler Jugend on that uh, castle. Um, it's, I think, the most prominent or more, most picturesque castle uh, on the in the Rhine River Valley. And um, it's one of the most sought uh, places for uh, any kind of, you know, um, shows that are held there. It's a, most popular, I think, one of the most popular pop, popular castles in Germany, Jausastels in Germany. Um, it's very hard to get a place there for a group to run a show. And we were really happy at that time that one group that uh, was actually booked for that slot at Pentecost dropped out and we got the chance to to take over. And we basically stayed for 13 years. So this was uh, specifically a RuneQuest focused convention. So this grew out of the RuneQuest society rather than gaming in general. And so did it from the start have a strong English language component with the broader uh, RuneQuest uh, population showing up, or did that happen over time? It actually started the year before. There was um, because before that, our the RuneQuest cons, as they were called, the conventions of our club were 
uh, at several places every year with a changing man, uh, changing organizing team. And the one before that was in, in Berlin. And that was the first time that we got David Hall and Nick Brook and some guys who were involved in running the renaissance uh, of RuneQuest in Glorantha in England and the tales of the Richie Moon magazine. And they came and they liked it a lot. And then uh, there was a first freeform run there. And from then on, we moved to the castle. And then from that moment on, it became a really international show because, you know, it's a castle in Germany on the Rhine and we were hosting a freeform, uh, Glorenta freeform. And so many, many people came. And uh, from the get-go, there was uh, I, I could see that potential going there. And uh, actually, one thing led to another. The first uh, international guest of honor we had in... Uh, 96 was Rob Ainsel, uh, who was at that time an employee of Chaosium. And uh, it is rumored that Greg sent Rob over to check the place out if it's really worth going there for him. Because, you know, uh, you, you can't go to every convention you're invited, as they're invited to. And uh, he liked it so much that the next year, basically, we could get Greg. And uh, I think Sandy was there as well. And so that kind of, you know get out the word and people were highly interested in coming and and greg and sandy became close friends so they showed up every year so that let us help to build a momentum of course charlie craig was there too at the time and and many many more people from the english gaming thing right and so uh tentacles offered a, a sort of strong component of uh, seminars and uh Tabletop games and free forums have always been a, a strong element of uh, what you're doing. I guess another uh, show that's uh, roughly similar uh, in the English-speaking world would be Continuum. I think uh, you're a little smaller than Continuum, but not a lot. Uh, and uh, so how? Uh, what have always been your uh, secrets of luring uh, people from all over? Uh, at at uh, the Kraken, for example, uh, we had... Uh, uh, people from Australia, from the U.S., uh, you have a strong Finnish contingent, you have uh, people from France, from Germany, from Belgium, uh, uh, Spain. So people have come from all over to uh, be here, and that was certainly true in the Tentacles years as well. So how do you maintain that connection to uh, this really broadly dispersed group of people? I think the the the, um, the seed for that was planted with the convulsion con uh, conventions that the, the the previous convention before that was a continuum, where they had or oh, basically it's the Glorantha thing I think is the the Glorantha community all over the world who's really interesting at getting together and sharing uh, ideas and and stuff, and of course like Greg Stafford and Sandy Peterson have been always been such a great magnet for for people not only because of their work but also because they are just very interesting and, and charismatic personalities um, and from that on people came and this was just an effect that you had to feed you know you just have to provide these basic components and i think one of the one of the most uh, important things is to take good care of your guests that you're visiting basically they they become friends and family members once they're over so you take good care of them they you know they actually like to be taken under the wing and you know see what you're doing and, and be around instead of just being shipped off to to some hotel and just picked up for the events and stuff that's actually not my experience not what what people what what uh, writers and designers and guests of honor actually like uh, they actually like to be around and you know see what you see and do what you do or not do what you do but be around and so that helped make them come back and with that it was actually possible to to just build that uh, if you want wipe 
uh, around it. And then, of course, people who travel all over the world just to be at your show, they tend to be special people. So, so they also bring games, they bring free forms, they bring crazy ideas. They started bringing prototypes here now to the, to Creighton. They become designers themselves. One good example might be Pietro Ceviani, who was already quit gaming and just by pure luck was uh, located in London and he googled Call of Cthulhu and he came across the Tentacles website and decided let's have a go and uh, from there on he just became uh, a writer and designer himself and uh, did, now he's working on the um, Mystic Iceland uh, second edition book I think that's I th these are the key factors for, for, for getting international people you have to put up a show for them to, to actually um, come to and grind their teeth on Right, and so the the designers are a big draw in getting people there. I take it. I, I'm sure that I'm pretty sure of it. It's really hard to you know point your finger. Is that really the decisive factor? I think it's the whole package you get. But uh, for us, guests of honor and designers are a, a key factor. Not only is it great to hang out with them, you know, before and after the show, but also they bring a lot of program. I mean, uh, we really make them work a lot. Um, I, and, I can attest to that. Yeah, so it doesn't get boring for them as well. I mean. Uh, and we get a lot of, um, you know, uh, spin-off content out of that. We get a lot of, you know, possibilities to work together, doing fundraisers together, and actually get them uh, paid work, as I'm happy to say. Right, uh, and uh, we should interrupt to say that in, in the particular culture of Glorantha fandom, fundraiser refers to a publication that you either uh, create to sell at the show or you create to sell after the show, and people buy that at a vastly inflated price in order to help uh, replenish the coffers of the convention. Yeah, and very rare as well. You know, we, we only can afford very limited uh, editions of, of, of printed items. Um, and although collecting is not as big a component in uh, the age of eBay as it used to be, or rather people don't collect by buying things at auctions, auctions used to be a huge part of Glorantha fandom with particular rare things fetching huge prices. And uh, one of the other things, though, that has changed is uh, in the change of venue from uh, Tentacles, which does still continue today under a different name, just not run by you, correct? Uh, and the team, yes, and under a different, uh, different club. Uh, or society, it's it's some of the people who who went there and keep keep continuing going there to to have that, uh, you know, to keep the memory alive in, in our eyes because we thought we it's time to move on and do something new. Um, and that's called the Eternal Con. It's called the Eternal Con, and it's still at the same location, at the same time, um, and, and but it's very similar, very different to to what we did with Tentacles and what we do now. So, um, what are the differences between Tentacles and Eternal Con? Uh, I, it's hard to say. I've never been to Eternal Con myself, uh, but it, it has one of the great benefits of it is that it's more family oriented. Um, people bring more and more kids there, and they have a large uh, family families attending. So gamers can bring their kids, and they have a kids kids free form, which I kind of admire. I kind of like that. So that, so they're more they're getting more into the family spirit, uh, as I can tell. Whereas we really stay true to the to our idea of you know getting programs for core gamers. Now, Castle Strahlek was uh, very beautiful. It was very impressive when there's the uh, uh, Invocation to Cthulhu event where you uh, had a gobo and shined the Tentacles logo up there and in the year I was there... And, was and the inflatable machine, tentacle. Inflatable tentacle. Uh, uh, to the dismay of some ordinary tourists who were there, yeah. or confusion at least. Um, but the accommodations 
were pretty Spartan. So the year I was there, I was, I was lucky. I was the one who had a solo room. The single. Of, a single. Uh, instead there of wasn't a single solo room. Yeah. Yes, there was, there was one of them. And I got it that year because uh, Greg wasn't there to take it. Um, and uh, But it was it's a youth hostel, and it's pretty Spartan. It's one of those, uh, you know, take your own towel and don't lose it places. Yeah, we made that a f- actually a funny thing. You know, yes, you had to bring your towel, which is a very weird German culture thing. You know, Germans like to hang on to their towels. I don't know. <laughs> it Did never you special towel backpacks or something? Because, yeah. of course, I lost my towel, towel yeah. immediately. We bought you one, I remember, yes. yeah. They, I don't know what, what, the, what the reason with the whole towels and still water thing really is, but... It's something you, you become aware of when you're running a show like that and you have international visitors and they say, why don't we have towels? It's because, of course, the, the Yaus Hostel with their bunk beds and their rough sheets and their uh, you know limited accommodation don't provide Germans with towels because it's a lot of you know effort to wash them and return them and you know the, it gets insane. And also Germans like to bring their own towels, especially if they... Um, on holiday and and hiking, I think it's, it's it has become a little bit a, a, a myth that that's the case. You know, especially by uh, the English making fun of Germans always placing their towels. But um, yeah, towels weren't provided, and soap and shower gel wasn't provided, uh, and there was no still water basically at that place. So it was really and in small rooms, and you had to bunk with somebody else, and that yeah. somebody else probably snored. Uh, so despite the beautiful presence of the Rhine River, you decided to uh, do something uh, more luxurious, and that's the Kraken. True. And uh, the thing is that actually made us consider that was the tentacles. Um, at one point, uh, one of Sven from our team said, well, basically, if you look at the setup we have, we pe- basically pass our health, health time, uh, life expectancy, because how, how many years in a row can you get Sandy Peterson, Greg Stafford, Charlie Crank, uh, Lawrence Whitaker there? And we succeeded to do that for 13 years, basically. So we had that strong line of, uh, of guests. But of course, things happen in life that people can't do shows anymore uh, people move away people get older and they don't fancy going to conventions anymore so with a set eye it said you know uh, we, we said it's time maybe to stop doing what we're doing uh, in the way we're doing it let's do a last one so everybody can say goodbye and then why not shrink the whole show and fix a problem we always had which was you spend eight months uh, setting up a show like that and try to have a great program and then people from all over the world show up and they meet friends they see only once a year and they always have to make the decision between gaming or drinking a beer having conversation looking on uh, looking at the rhine which is really an amazing view from from there and so our program tended to more and more get the short stick of the the, the, the situation. We decided, hmm, why don't we have a show that actually has better accommodations, has more time for both things, socialize and game, and just make it a little bit longer so we, we are not stressed out at the end of three days uh, of high-intensity gaming, which is cool. It's fun, but it, it, it's it's you know, draining you from from all the energy you have and we're still there a week basically to set it up and break it down so why not use the whole week we're there to to actually do something so that was the idea and we said historically it would be cool to move from a castle to a schloss a chateau or whatever the english term for that might be i'm not aware of that actually right now and have all the creature comfort we need and and that was a conceptual idea we had but we didn't have the place at the time so we couldn't announce that we are actually not ending tentacles and stop doing shows because we really like it but having a new show we couldn't announce it uh, at that time 
but about three months after we the last tentacles convention we stumbled across this website the website to this place and we said let's do it and next year we had a new convention which was pretty marvelous for us to 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 be able to come up with a new show right so the uh the rooms are better initially you had a, a longer time now you've tightened it a bit you've moved it from uh, summer to autumn which is uh, easier for those of us who uh, have to be at Gen Con in August to uh, to deal with. You also had uh, the experience of sort of being influential in the creation of sort of the French sister show uh, to uh, the Kraken, uh, which is Chimériat, and I was lucky enough to go there a while back. Uh, that's in Provence. How did you uh, sort of help uh, Philippe Arabeau, who's the who's the Fabi Kuchler of France, to to become the Fabi Kuchler of France? Well, the, the it was actually very interesting. We, we always struggled to uh, get French-speaking people, people from France, to Tentacles, even though it was really close to the border, and it was would have been really easy for them to to, to come to um, to Tentacles. We always wondered where that is. There were a few uh, people who came, but there were always one French person instead of like a group where they might be comfortable from time to time to just stick together and do things. And then um, I think the next guy who came was Gregory Privat, and he spread the word, and he did crazy things all the time, crazy miniature games, crazy miniature setups and stuff. And then somehow um, I met Philippe and his buddy, my Sven Remy, at, at uh, Convulsion, and they walked up to us and said, are you the guys from Germany who run the fabled convention in, uh, at the Castle Stalag? And we said, yes, who are you? We are, the, we are from, from France, we'd like to come to your show. And we said, yes, sure. And then we, we met, and they, he was so odd, that's what he said uh, about Tentex, he said, I want to do the same thing, can you t- tell me how to do it? And uh, I visited him on a holiday, Talked four hours, sends into him, tried to tell him what to do, and and then they just started. And, and he said the most valuable advice I gave him was start small, which is kind of embarrassing because there were lots of other things that I, good tips that I thought that I gave him. Uh, yeah, and that's how it happened. He just liked Tentacles so much, I guess. Now uh, it's hard to imagine a uh, Kraken or Shemiriad style show cropping up uh, in the U.S. or Canada because we have a much a different template for what a gaming convention looks like. But uh, in these days when uh, people are willing to spend a bit more money on a gaming hobby and are older and perhaps looking for something with more amenities, the idea of a gaming retreat sounds kind of appealing. But I think it's more likely if someone is listening uh, and thinking, hey, why don't I create a show like that? That they're probably here in Europe. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to set up a show that runs roughly along the same model as uh, the Kraken or Shemiriad? Well, first of all, I think the, the difficulty is the distances you you have to cover in, in, in America, in the States, or you know, in Northern uh, America, because you have to find a place that actually is appealing enough for people to go. Uh, it should be something that's close to a big city, uh, maybe, so it has an additional appeal to, to make the time to travel, to maybe visit New York or whatever, you know, San Francisco uh, also, or, or the like, and have like you have to find a, sp- a place that's actually affordable to to rent and has accommodations. I think that hotels is a problem because hotels have that very they uh, they have a very strong impact on the sense of, of 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 what it really is. It's just a hotel, and it's hard to get that out of your right. head. There isn't the uh, equivalent of the, the a pension slash yeah. state like we have here. Like like it's very common in Europe. 
Right. So let's say uh, the person listening to this question is European. So what do they? How do they set that up? You have to find a good place. Uh, that's I think that's the most important thing. You should have some connections to some gaming community. You should not be alone. You should have some uh, you know um, f- financial framework or legal framework around you. So you're not. Uh, basically do that out of your own pocket never do that never do be uh, responsible um totally on your own or for a show like that because it can go wrong uh you should have a club or you should form a co- uh, not a corporation but there are several in germany it's called gmbh or it's, it's like a th- some form of corporate entity that you have to have around you that you're running um which is very neat in, in europe i think it's really relatively easy to form a club who has some you know you have some legal responsibilities um as a as a you know as a uh, framework for 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 your show and then um it's important to to make an effort to get some people there and offer a program something charming that people would connect to maybe not a guest in the beginning but you really have to start small and plan with about we started with our club started with a show that just had 20 to 30 people going there every year and you do that for a while until you grow organically um you can't expect to start a show and have 60 80 or 100 people in attendance you have to be specialized you should specialize you shouldn't have say this is a gaming convention because there's a ton of these you should have like we love Shadowrun or we love feng shui or we do this just you know stick to it and then try to make a show that you really want to go to instead of making compromises about what you think other people might like because people can choose and they do you know if, if, you, if your show is not appealing to them they just don't attend and just be bold and do crazy things and stuff that that you really like to do and try to find creative people uh, give them space to do their stuff and support them doing their things this year we had someone doing massages and stuff why not i mean there's all kinds of things that are not gaming related that add to the flavor of the show you should definitely explore that like uh, if you have international people let them have let them bring food let them bring some stuff of their culture if they want to do x-roaring try to organize that in a in a, in a sensible fashion uh, or have free form free forms bigger games or games that many people can participate in that, that are a pull for, for the show and then also um, be visible you know do your be on twitter be on facebook be on google plus and, and try to find them something some stories to tell about your show and and get it out there and uh, i think that's the that's the most important things you have to keep in mind so if you could pick the country where one of our listeners will hear your advice and follow it which uh, uh, european country would you like to see a Kraken or Shamiriad style convention sprung up. It would be inter- interesting to see some, uh, because I'm more inclined to the colder climate, I would, would love to see one up north, maybe in Norway. Um, Finland has Ropecon, of course, and I think no one stands a chance doing something with Ropecon or... Um, Scotland would be interesting. Ireland would be interesting because you have many role players uh, in, in, in Great Britain. Yeah, Ireland has its own very distinct convention scene. It's a, its own also, its own very strong thing. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Fabi. And uh, I guess it's time for you to get back to uh, cleaning up after the show. So thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Roman. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, 
you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. And now it's time for a very special, shall we say, spectacular and tentacular episode of the Cinema Hut, because, uh, Ken, it wasn't just uh, me gallivanting around uh, a couple of weeks ago or a week and a half ago, but you were, uh, as is your wont, at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland. And this is sort of... Uh, I, I was at the Cthulhu Con, which is just a straight-up con, not much on the film side. This is the more classic event, which is a film festival on which there are some uh, sort of uh, convention-style events attached, like some... Uh, seminars that you did. Was there a uh, new and exciting seminar topic that you were asked to tackle this time? Uh, the the new... I don't know how exciting it was. Uh, the new topic uh, for me was the what is what was life like in the 20s and 30s, Ken and ST and uh, Scott Glancy and Heather Hudson and other person who I've forgotten, but they were on it and they were very... Oh, the other Scott, Scott Connors. And I'm sure there was yet another person on this it was a big panel, but the the topic was what is life like in the twenties and thirties? And so I was uh, in the uncharacteristic role of moderator. So we all sort of laid out a little bit of business about what was it like in the 1920s and late 1930s, the lived experience, and then took questions from the audience and uh, managed to get through an entire panel without making it all about eugenics. So good for us, I guess. There you go. Um, and uh, I basically just recycled the introduction of the 30s chapter in Trail of Cthulhu. So if you've read that, you've already read what I said at the panel. And I'm given to understand that someone will put that up on YouTube anon, but I don't know how anon. And then the other panel that I was on was with Derek Koch of uh, Monster Kid Radio, and Sean Branny of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and we talked about black and white horror film as a Lovecraftian experience, and rest assured, I plugged the hell out of Shadows Over Filmland for us, and we talked about other films of the black and white era that are more Lovecraftian than you would think uh, to think of them. And uh, Derek Koch, you may remember, did the Lovecraft Gets Hammered panel, um, that we were on, or that I was on at least, I think you were on it as well, yeah. at uh, CthulhuCon. And so you remember Derek as the uh, the the big, super knowledgeable film, uh, monster film guy, and that is indeed who he is. Uh, speaking of films, uh, it's time to start talking about the films that you saw at the festival, and the one you liked best was called Dead Tongues. It was called that, and amazingly enough, this was a film... And I think it was, it would not just, I liked it best. I believe that it won the, uh, award, the, the audience award and the jury award at the show. I know it won one of them. Uh, and it was made by two Northwestern University film students, uh, Roberto Drille and Brianna Dorn. And it cost about four grand to make. And were it not for the sound, which was indeed, uh, muddy and out of sync, 
You would never have known that. You could have guessed it because there aren't a lot of establishing shots. The, there's only like three actors. It's it's super slimmed down. Yeah, it's gotten a lot easier to shoot on no money, but yeah. sound is still is still it's, sound. There's no technological leap that has made sound any easier. And and uh, and it's very effective. And like all good indies, if you've got nothing else. Uh, good scripting is literally just as expensive as bad scripting. And so you can go ahead and write a really great script, which is what they did. This is about a, um, a linguistic student who commits suicide. Um, he pours gasoline on himself and sets himself on fire. Uh, his name is Germain is his last name. So he is, um, a Arthur German type and it is a find not in Africa, but in Peru that causes him to it, to do it. But at that point, it's sort of, radiates outward and stops being any specific Lovecraft story and becomes its own wonderful uh, examination of sort of a linguistic time bomb left in this, in this cavern that he did, that he deciphered uh, to bitter, terrible end. And then his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend and his previously unknown twin brother begin to look into his death and try and make sense of it, which of course is the last thing you want to do in a Lovecraft universe. Right. So, a previously unknown twin brother sounds uh, kind of like a player character has been just uh, rolled up, hasn't it? It sounds a little bit like that, and it's an interesting sort of a... Because when you, it shows up, you're immediately thinking, all right, this is obviously super artificial and insane, and why would you do that? And this has got to be something. And then the story gets so good and so sort of in the moment, like you accept it in the moment, that you stop disbelieving that first reveal... And then later on, you're, you, you are discovering that perhaps all of your instincts were correct, including the one to, no, don't actually play that uh, thumb drive. Don't do that. So the rest of the ones we're going to talk about uh, got the Ken and Robin Consume Media uh, good category, which implies that, there's, uh, that they are uh, enjoyable, but there's one sort of uh, typically uh, telling flaw about them that uh, prevents them from getting the, the coveted recommended status. Mm -hmm. uh, but you kind of have to grade on a curve with indie uh, Lovecraftian horror. And so the next one is The Creature Below. What was The Creature Below all about? The Creature Below is about a marine biologist. It's directed by Stuart Spark. Um, she goes on a deep dive, and the special effects are CGI uh, for this part of it. And they're actually pretty good for what, for what it is. She goes on a deep dive, taking uh, this, uh, diving suit, you know, deeper than it's ever been taken. And while she's down there, she has a vision. We, the audience see tentacles, uh, wafting around her and we're like, Oh, all right. We know what's happening. And then she blacks out and is dragged up to the surface by her panic people. The, her suit is busted up. Um, the guy who sent her down there is mad and he fires her off his boat. And so, when she leaves, uh, in a fit of pique, we think at the time, she takes the mysterious egg that was lodged in her suit's airway back with her to her house. And uh, that turns <laughs> oh, the out... Oh, bring back the mysterious egg error. That turns out to be just as good an idea as you'd think it would. But one of the things that Spark is doing with the movie is he's trying to make her family life part of what is shown in... Uh, relief against her new relationship with the monster from the deep, the creature below that she has brought up. And again, this would be a, re a recommended movie 110% if the monster did not look like a puppet. I, I think that in this year of our Lord 2016, and this was a proper movie with, with some money in it, don't make your monster look like a puppet. Uh, that's just 
advice that I have to give you. Right. And you're not complaining that it's a practical effect monster, but that it's a crummy not practical effect terrifying. monster. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, the, the, they do everything they can. They, they don't show it too much, but every time they do show it, you're like, Oh, that's a puppet. And it's just, it's not, it's not a good puppet. It, it's not even like a Harryhausen stop motion puppet. It's a, the film someone is not called the puppet below. Someone is dragging a puppet around and it is. And when she's holding the, the monster in its, in its sort of uh, younger pupil form or larval form, she's holding a puppet. And it's just, there's no part of this that does not just ruin it. And so the trouble is the end reveal, the, the bit at the end before they kind of go over the top, the, the last bit, is super effective and the and the and the effect there is not bad but the effect has been undercut by the previous bad effects and so uh it is a it is a real crying shame and one hesitates to judge too harshly because i i I expect it was just beyond the competence of whoever was doing it and they knew they wanted to make this awesome movie and they had you know only a narrow window but you can't curve around a puppet too much i think uh, next up, we have From Beyond, but it's not the From Beyond you're thinking of. It's the From Beyond from Hungary. Right. And this is a straight up uh, terrifying metaphysical movie, just like the story is. It's uh, it's only 44 minutes long, which makes it, I guess, on the boundary. It was shown at the end of one of the shorts sequences. Um, the, 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 the festival does a number of uh, features and a number of shorts packages. And the shorts are usually, well, like most shorts packages at most festivals, kind of a mixed bag. Some are stronger than others, but because this is a 44 minute short, I put it up and and pretended it's a feature. And I think, you know, in the world of Lovecraftian film, it is a feature, Uh, but it takes it totally seriously. It plays it straight. The actors are all sort of, you know, 21st century looking guys. It does not look convincingly 1920. And and for some reason, it's still set in Providence. But the Providence Bulletin, which it says Providence Bulletin at the top, all of its news stories are in Hungarian. So that was a little weird. Well, that's just a, a flip of the classic uh, Hollywood approach. Exactly. To, to the, the Budapest Bible. Times yeah. <laughs> presents. And, and so, yes, I recognize the flip, but it was a little disconcerting. But again, the movie's about being disconcerted. And the uh, the ultraviolet effects, the from beyond effects, someone just went bananas with some kind of computer program and made some really great, weird... The, uh, cinema effects. It was sort of like if, um, the, 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 the space baby at the end of 2001 was mean and hated you, that kind of thing. It was very, very unsettling and, and unearthly and, and or, or off-putting. Or got cranky and had to go to bed. Maybe it just got cranky, but it, it, it was a real proper, you know, oh man, I've looked into this and this is a bad scene. The ultraviolet monsters were, were really sort of, not so much scary in the sense of, oh, no, it's ultraviolet eels eating me, but scary in the sense of what the hell is this thing? And and so that really worked. It did, however, because it had to get all the way up to 44 minutes on a super thin story, it did sort of insert a bunch of things between it and the end of the movie. And they were obviously inserted because they never really came back to pay off. And that's sort of a problem with uh, with something like From Beyond that is really a very posed story and that it has to have that unified effect to work. So, you know, they get distracted on the way to the fireworks factory, but when you get to the fireworks factory, it's worth the trip. Uh, next up we have From Beyond, but it is the From Beyond you're thinking of, except it's got some more footage because it's the director's cut. It's the five-minute extra director's cut, which is apparently new for the Blu-ray. When 
they made from beyond. And we had Stuart Gordon there as the guest of honor as the real guest of honor. And it was super great to get to talk to him and tell him that I'm the person who kept single-handedly kept reanimator in theaters in Oklahoma city for more than a month. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so, and so he, he appreciated that. And he's of course a Chicago theater guy. So we had that in common. So it was terrific to hang out with him, but he had the story that when they released reanimator, they released it without a rating. And then when he brings from beyond to the MPAA, they're mad at him for making money on an unrated film. And so they really hacked the hell out of from beyond and looking at the director's cut, which they, uh, finally, I think MGM found it. They, they said, Hey, Stuart, come over. There's this old can of film we found with your name on it. Come get it. And he shows up and it's all the cuts that the editor had saved. He hadn't just thrown them out. He'd put them in this film canister and stuck them in the back of the MGM vault. And they were all terrible and scratched up and garbagey. And I guess Stuart Gordon made big, sad puppy eyes and asked MGM to digitally clean them up and put them back into the film so that they could have a new Blu-ray. Or perhaps said, you know who still buys Blu-rays? Horror fans. Lovecraft fans. (laughs) Yeah. And so that uh, is the result. And that's why that's the Blu-ray. And so that's the cut that they showed was the director's cut, which was the first time it had been shown on a big screen ever. And so that was great because the, if you've seen the original from beyond, which one assumes you have, uh, but maybe you haven't, it's Jeffrey Combs, a very super young looking Jeffrey Combs and Dr. Catherine McMichael, Barbara Crampton, um, uh, who, uh, inspired a generation slightly younger than me to pursue girls and Lovecraft simultaneously, something that had not happened previously, I think. Yeah. And if, if only he'd written some girls, into if it, only he had girls, then maybe all life would be different. Anyhow, um, so the, the story is that, uh, the ultraviolet is not the only thing your pineal gland is seeing, not just the ultraviolet, but it governs sexual desire. And so sexual liberation is also liberation from the confines of the flesh. And that's sort of the, I, you can't say undercurrent because it's the overcurrent of the damn film. It's, um, uh, and, and so the, 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 um, uh, depravity literally and decadence, also literally, are even bigger and even louder because the MPA, you know, they know their business. They cut out the part that made the depravity and the and the decadence really work. So it's it's longer and broader. But the trouble is that um, the because so much of this film is right up there on the surface. There's not an an awful lot going on beneath it in the way that I think the the sort of black tongue in cheek gallows humor of reanimator is what makes that a better film than this even though this is based on a much better story um and so it doesn't have gallows humor so much as just a and again one would have thought this was impossible until Stuart Gordon proved it wasn't a lovecraftian dirty joke of a movie and that's what it is yes uh, gordon has always had uh, at least one part grand guignol uh, <laughs> to go with the the subtler Lovecraftian philosophical horror, and uh, you know it's more cinematic, but right. it's it's not pure Lovecraft, and it's and it's certainly very grand in this, uh, yes, in this in this version in this cut, and it's and it's just worth seeing if you haven't seen From Beyond since the eighties, as perhaps you haven't, to you know go back take another look at it. It still works as a movie, but it just isn't aiming any higher, I think, than good. And so that's where it gets. And finally, we come to The Unkindness of Ravens. And when this is a Laurie Brewster film, and I made sure to see this one because I'd seen his previous film at the show and was amazed at how good it was and how M.R. Jamesian it was, not even Lovecraftian, which is a much harder note to hit, frankly. And 
his debut is called Lord of Tears when I saw it and is named, I think, The Owl Man on the internet if you go looking for it. And I know it's streaming on Amazon for money, but I don't know where else you can find it. Um, so go That's look, people. That's up to you, people. You have yes, Google. You, you have Googles. But it's called The Owl Man is probably where you'll find it. But if you search Laurie Brewster and Owl Man, you'll find it, whatever it is. And that was really great and really controlled and very intense. It was like a super big but uh, quiet ghost story, and it was scary and great. The first act of this movie is that. It's even scarier and even greater, and then it goes full-on Jacob's Ladder. And that's not an accident. Laurie Brewster proved in Owlman that he can make a movie that is all-controlled, all-minimal, all, you know, sublimated all the time, but then he didn't want to do that very clearly, and so it's sort of a a literal journey into hell by our protagonist who is a, a soldier suffering from very bad PTSD and his uh, therapist who is either really, really bad at therapying or is part of the grand conspiracy of fate that is doing this to him has sent him up to an isolated lodge in the highlands of Scotland to sort of face his fears and get over it. His fears center on ravens. So guess what? The whole lodge is full of that's right. Ravens. And th- I, I'm just guessing, do they have eye pecking on their mind? They do. They very much do. And you get to see eye pecking both imagined and flashed back to, and there is much quoting from and shots of a book called in the company of crows and ravens, which is a real book um, uh, by John Marsluff and Tony Angel. And it's about sort of the, the weird behaviors and strange things about crows and ravens. And so, guess what? The psychiatrist sends him off with a copy of this book. So it's possibly just a good old fashioned uh, ordeal, right? Like you're going to go out and you're going to either have your shamanic vision quest and come back fixed, or you're going to be torn to pieces and it's really out of my hands, which happens. So looked at in that perspective, I guess you'd say well done, but it's so dissonant and so diverges from that really great first Almany act that I just, you know, this is more of a, oh, if only you'd had the confidence of doing me another great Owlman only with Ravens, this would have been even better as opposed to a pretty disorganized vision quest, quite frankly. Uh, well, uh, there are things that are disorganized in this life, and there are things that are organized. And one of the organized things is that when we talk for about this much time, we then end our episode. So now that you've... Uh, Got the scoop on the HP Alien movies uh, that will be on your radar screen soon. It's time for us to wave our tentacles or our uh, raven's wings. Depend, you know, envision what you like. Uh, but we'll be back to uh, talk into your ear again, same time next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such hallowed patrons as... Rob Abrazado. Robert King. Jason Detman. Yuri Horneman. And Martin Rundqvist. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>